Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is um, May the 31st, 2021 in the United States. It's Memorial Day. It's late, uh, late morning in California. Um, of course, uh, to have Memorial Day, you need to know how to remember. Memorial Day is all about remembering. And tragically, there are some people around the world, in, in, unfortunately, an increasing amount of people who, who have lost the ability to remember. Uh, today's Washington Post has a piece about a 54-year-old man who um, who is suffering from what a, a man called Phil Gutis, uh, early-stage Alzheimer's at 54, tragically young age, um, a, a mental fogginess he describes, as if um, as if someone is stealing his memories. This idea of Alzheimer's as a as a uh, brain disorder that robs the patients of their ability to remember is something that the New York Times, in a, in a piece uh, all too recently, also described. This piece uh, is about an Alzheimer's drug, um, and the two authors of the, the, the op-ed in the New York Times, uh, one of them who directs the Stanford Center for Memory, are suggesting that we're not quite ready yet for uh, a drug that will fix Alzheimer's disease. Um, it's a complicated subject. Uh, three new books out about memory, the AARP reports, one called Remember by Lisa Genova, the second, The Problems of Alzheimer's by Jason Carlowish, and the third, The Memory Thief by Lauren Aguirre. Uh, we are very fortunate to have Lauren on the show today. Uh, the book is out uh, today or tomorrow. Um, and it's a really interesting and important and enlightening read about what it's like to lose your memory. Uh, Lauren, uh, talking to us from Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I, uh, congratulations on the, on the book. Um, I was really struck by your uh, introduction in which you say that um, you've, you're a this is your first book, but you're a, you're a, you're a very experienced, distinguished science journalist. Uh, you said you found it difficult to resist the gravitational pull of the story you write about because you personally know what it's like, at least very briefly, to lose your memory. Describe that feeling, Lauren. Uh, well, it started with um, actually what's called deja vu, which is when you feel like you've been somewhere before. So it's, it's a similar sort of memory problem, but the one that was really quite scary was, uh, it's called jamais vu, never been seen. And suddenly nothing made sense at all. I didn't know who I was, where I was, even what, what century it was. And there was no connection to the past or the future. And it was, it was truly terrifying. And, and when I finally came out of it after a few minutes, you know, I went to the doctor and they said, oh, that sounds like a seizure, and went through various testing. At the end of the day, you know, I take medicine. I have epilepsy. I take medicine for it, and I'm fortunate enough that it's fine. But it definitely left me with uh, an appreciation for how terrifying it is to lose your memory and also an appreciation for how strange the brain can be. 
Certainly. I mean, it's um, many of our, our, our darkest stories that the great nightmare is losing, losing your memory. In, in terms of the experience, though, can, and, and I don't mean to make any kind of you know, verbal joke about it, but how can you remember losing your memory? What's the feeling? Is it like being in some, some sort of vacuum? It was uh, sort of a creeping sense of dread because it wasn't instantaneous. It just sort of came over me. Um, and, you know, I remember the fear. So it's interesting that you ask how you remember it. I just remember not remembering anything. So it was, it was just a void. Um, and that lack of connection and not even knowing who I was that that was the scary thing. I actually had to like repaint the room and, and change the whole room. It was it was such a, a, a difficult experience. But of course, for me, I'm fortunate and it was over. And, and for many people, that's sadly the story of their lives. Right. And and the story of their lives all too sadly, tragically, is 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 the story of, of your new book, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. Um you, you say, you're writing about the book, this is a story about memory. The brain's almost magical and still somewhat mysterious trick for making sense of the world. Um, I was really struck by that because, of course, you're absolutely right. Without memory, we have no ability to make sense of the world in any way, do we? No, we don't. And, you know, we talk a lot about how important it is to live in the present moment, and it is. But if that's all you have, if you, if you don't have a past or, or a future to imagine, um, the present moment doesn't mean that much. The present moment is, is just scary. Your book is, of course, about memory loss. It's not a book about Alzheimer's, though, although I think Alzheimer's plays a role in the book. You're bringing together two stories, two narratives, along with these headlines today about Alzheimer's and a new drug that may be able to deal with it. Tragically, we've had more and more headlines about opioid deaths. Apparently, uh, according to the Post, they've been surging during the, uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, more and more uh, pieces about culprits in opioid. We know about the the Sackler family, of course, um, uh, the family, at least according to one piece, who created the opioid epidemic. And, and your book, uh, Lauren, is uh, both about memory loss and the opioid crisis. Is that fair? Yeah, well, it's a story that really sits at the intersection of, of two crises, the opioid crisis and the Alzheimer's epidemic. Um, so let me go back to the beginning and just explain that the story that opens and closes the book is about um, a really rare brain injury that happens to a tiny fraction of people who overdose on fentanyl. And um, researchers don't understand yet why some people are, are affected and others aren't. But what happens is that fentanyl zeroes in on a tiny little structure in the brain called the hippocampus, which is the memory center of the brain. Um, and if you look at an MRI scan right afterwards, you'll see that the hippocampus, which is two things actually, two sort of upside down seahorse shaped structures very deep in the brain, that they kind of glow like a light bulb against the, the rest of the brain, which is normal. It's kind of like a, a distress signal from millions of neurons, some of which have died. And so as a result of this injury, um, these victims 
can't remember anything new. So they have what's called enterograde amnesia. So they know who they are. They know who their mother is. You know, if they're lucky enough that someone took them to the hospital, um, they'll just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Um, why am I here? You overdosed. 30 seconds later, why am I here? You overdosed. And they'll introduce themselves to their doctors each time anew as if they'd never met them. And sadly, um, this is a very marginalized, stigmatized population. And some of them, their concerns aren't taken seriously. And they go home. Some people really don't get much better and they go home and they have no support and they don't even have really the dignity of a diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, it's as if the opioid addiction is, it's not as if it's bad enough already. Um, a completely nightmarish drug addiction. And on top of that, um, you suggest, and, and more and more doctors are arguing this, that it's actually people who are uh, addicted to opioids are suffering memory loss. The, the, the book um, focuses on a 25-year-old young man. I think he was a, or a graduate of UCLA, certainly someone quite well-educated with a successful, happy life in front of him who, um, who, who has experienced both memory loss and opioid. His name is Owen Rivers. I couldn't find a, a photo of him in the book or online. Tell me about Owen Rivers, um, Lauren. So he's really an extraordinary person um, with, with an extraordinary story. So he began using drugs at a very young age, um, multiple drugs. Um, and he, over time, developed a, a real fear of memory loss, which had no apparent basis in reality. You know, he was extremely smart. Um, he went through several rehabs, um, but the whole time just increasingly worried about his memory and would write lists and journal for hours every day. Um, ironically enough, he never actually went back and read those journals, but he still graduated, um, you know, with a 4.0 from a prestigious university. The reason there's no picture is um, I'm protecting his identity. Um, and then after a long period of sobriety, he... Um, was told he might have a, a brain tumor. And most of us would be pretty terrified by that. And he was actually ecstatic because that would give him an excuse to use heroin yeah. or fentanyl, which by now had become the drug that he uh, it's, it's, it's really one of the more, it's a heartbreaking uh, it piece in the book about, as you say, most people when they were given the news that they didn't have a brain tumor would be completely thrilled. But this guy was devastated because he wanted the tumor so he would get the drugs. Right. So ironically enough, he was waiting for the news, the confirmation that it was indeed a brain tumor. And then he got the news one night that it was a mistake and he was fine. And that, um, that was enough of a disappointment that he, he went out after 18 months and found fentanyl and overdosed and uh, woke up with no ability to form new memories. So the, the fear that had plagued him for many years had finally come to pass. Is that, that's an uncannily horrible coincidence, isn't it? I mean, the fact that it it, a young man who was attracted to drugs should always fear losing his memory, and, and then he did. Yes. Can you explain that? What would the scientists say about that? Well, I don't think the scientists know, but it, it, it does lead to um, one hypothesis that's come out of the investigation into what's called this opioid-associated 
amnestic syndrome, which is um, very much a hypothesis that needs to be tested. But the idea is if that a really potent dose of opioids like fentanyl can damage your hippocampus really severely, might uh, long-term chronic high-dose opioids, but as prescribed for pain control, very subtly erode your memory over time in, in ways that are subtle enough that they could be going under the radar. And this would especially be a concern for older people who are often prescribed opioids um, at a higher percentage than the rest of the population. You write about uh, rivers, uh, you, you, you do it beautifully. You, you write, alone in the stillness of his apartment, 25-year-old Owen Rivers hunches over his phone and reads the journal entry he's just written into his notes app. If nothing, and this is, what he's writing. If nothing matters, we contrive meaning for ourselves. So why can't mine be something that soothes me so that I can live here more peacefully? There are pressures from every direction saying that using drugs is acceptable. And I understand most of them, but I still think that it's been the best solution for me so far. We actually had a, a Columbia University professor on strongly arguing in favor of uh, legalizing most drugs. I'm not sure where he would stand on, on opioids. Were you convinced by this? Should people like Owen uh, be able to just take any drugs they choose, hallucinogenic drugs? Oh, you know, that I, I certainly didn't go into that in the book, so I, I wouldn't say I'm a policy uh, wonk whatsoever. I, I, I think that we tend to sort of make things a, a zero-sum game, all-or-nothing um, you know, uh, I'm not sure. I, we obviously aren't doing a great job yet in, in this country handling the addiction crisis. And I think it's an addiction crisis, not, not purely an opioid crisis. Um, and I think there are a lot of misconceptions about addiction. I think it's true that some people can use drugs occasionally and, and never become addicted. And others, for reasons that aren't always clear, are much more susceptible to, to an addiction that really can take a toll on their, on their life. What about the the element of of, of sanity? Um, uh, you 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 write about his his lists. Um, you know, he writes about a portable Nietzsche. You know, perhaps Nietzsche himself obviously went insane from writing and lists. What is the connection between insanity, the the opioid addiction, and memory loss? How, how are those all linked? Um, I, I don't, I don't know if there's a link between insanity and, and memory loss. I mean, I think that without your memory, um, you can't make sense of anything. So there, there's that word in there, insanity. Um, but the, I guess that's all I have to say about that. Uh, your book is also, um, quite positive in some ways. It's, it's, it's about mm -hmm. doctors figuring out this connection. You're a medical journalist, you're not a, a doctor yourself. And one in particular you focus on is, is Jed Barash. I don't know if that's the right way to pronounce it again, Barish. a Massachusetts-based doctor who, who seems to be one of the doctors in the narrative who is breaking through. It's interesting that he doesn't even have a Wikipedia entry. Uh, he's clearly not that well known yet. Tell me about Barash and, and, and other doctors who are making these connections. Well, one of the things I found so interesting about the story is it's really sort of guerrilla science. None of the doctors working on this have, have any funding. 
they do it on their own time on, on weekends and late at night and early in the morning. Um, and they're all sort of motivated by um, the puzzle. You know, when you see something new and unexplained for the first time, that's when science gets really interesting. And that's an opportunity to say, hey, what do we not understand about the system, in this case, about how the brain works, um, that we could really use, that we could turn around um, and say, okay, if opioids are damaging the hippocampus, can we use that insight to protect our memories in some way? And so all of these doctors were very, I would almost say, perseverative about um, following down the leads and it, it's, it's tedious and it's difficult, but they all felt you know, that it was worth it, not just for the sake of these patients to know what had happened to them, but for what we could learn about memory. You suggest in another piece, in a Nova piece that you write regularly for, that um, there are some issues within the medical industry in terms of the sharing of information. Surprise, surprise, obviously, American, the American medical system is, is in different kinds of crisis. What reforms do you think need to be made to the system to enable the progress of, of, of this kind of innovative research. I'm not sure where you stand, by the way, on this new Alzheimer's drug and whether it's even connected to your work in the book. Um, it's connected to my work in the sense that I do um, describe the hypothesis on which this new drug is based, which has sort of dominated the field for 30 years and um, has failed 25 clinical trials. I guess I would just say about that drug that you know, the FDA's own advisory panel of, of 11 doctors uh, voted almost unanimously uh, against approving it. So, I so you're on the side of these, uh, the, the, these op-ed writers, the two op-ed writers in the New York Times who, we obviously won an Alzheimer's drug, but um, this is not the right one. Um, well, you know, I, I listen to the experts and um, the ones that I'm reading and the ones that I've spoken with don't think this is the drug. Um, and moreover, that if this drug is approved and lots of people start taking it, then there won't be people available or not enough people available for clinical trials of, of other drugs or other interventions that might be more effective. You write about Alzheimer's, um, again, in a, in a very chilling way, uh, Lauren. You write, imagine waking up one morning to a world where tens of millions of people have lost their memories. Most victims are over the age of 65, but some are younger. They don't recognize their family members. Many are so confused, they're found wandering the streets, lost in their own neighborhoods. Um, is Alzheimer's on the rise? And, 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 and perhaps it's not connected to opioids, but could it be connected to other environmental issues, chemical issues? It could be. I mean, all brain diseases are, are difficult to understand and Alzheimer's, especially so because it starts so early. It starts really 15 to 20 years before anyone sees any symptoms. So if you can't go back to the very beginning of the disease, you don't know what the cause is. And it's hard to find a cure for something that you don't know what the cause is. So, um, you know, I, I think that, um, progress is gonna be made. Every scientist I spoke with said, I'm optimistic now in a way that I wasn't five years ago. Um, they say things like there's a renaissance, there are you know, the tools, new tools that are available that will allow us to uh, 
get that we know what questions to ask now and we know how to answer them even if we don't see the actual answers so you know we've been here before i think being an alzheimer's uh, researcher is an exercise in, in humility um, but it's also an exercise in, in optimism and i remember one of the scientists i spoke with i said it must be so depressing being an alzheimer's researcher how do you do it and he said, actually, being an Alzheimer's researcher is really fundamentally an optimistic choice because it assumes that there's a light at the end of some tunnel. And if you keep on walking, you'll get there. Uh, at the end of the book, you get um, some of the protagonists, uh, Barash and, and, and Rivers, to, to, to write in the book. And I found that really, um, really wonderful. Um, uh you uh he rivers writes it's no it's no exaggeration to say that i lived in complete in near complete darkness for the first months after the incident um uh, at first attempts at google searching various combinations of keywords like overdose plus memory loss plus oxycontin plus hippocampal damage yielded nothing more than frustration what's interesting is that his enlightenment came from from reading one of your uh, articles, Lauren? Uh, uh, in Nova, you, you you're probably uh, uh, America's one of America's leading journalists in this area. Did he contact you? How did you actually connect initially with him? Well, I had actually left Nova, um, so. Um... He, he did try to contact me, but he, he didn't reach me. I didn't get the message right away. So, but he um, has had the wherewithal to sort of follow the leads and get in touch with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health. And from there to Jed Barish, and from there to another neurologist, Monroe Butler, who was out at University of California, San Francisco. And, um, oh, and because he really wanted to make some sort of meaning out of his tragedy, um, volunteered to participate in research um, at UC San Francisco, where they found that uh, he lost 10% um, of the volume of his hippocampus from the overdose. And his episodic memory, his um, memory for new events and new information, um, he tested at the level of someone with Alzheimer's. However, um, he has so many other strengths um, especially his, his planning, you know, the, his very obsession with memory and his ability to organize his life and plan is what's made it possible for him to really continue and, and rebuild. And of course, it's a devastating injury still, but um, he's found a way to, to carry on. And I just found him a very remarkable person and I'm, I'm so glad that he contributed to the end of the book because yeah I mean this the stuff he, he he writes is wonderful he says he writes my relationship with memory preceding the instant could at best be described as tenuous a rare subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder comprising an irrational fear of forgetting predates my hippocampal injury and subsequent amnesia uh, syndrome by nearly a decade uh, that's right. No stranger to the bold fist of, of irony. And, and, and the essay at the end is really um, striking. I'm not suggesting that he become the poster child for this. But don't you think that a guy who has been through this, who's so articulate, so simultaneously heroic and tragic, shouldn't he be speaking about this to the world? Does, shouldn't he be revealing who he is so that people actually see a, a human face to it? Well, I think by speaking to me and agreeing to have his story in this in this book, 
uh, he is speaking to the world and, and he may decide someday to to reveal who he is. Um, but that's really his choice. And no, I, I, don't, I don't think he, he has any responsibility to do that. With all your research, particularly on this book, uh, Lauren, how does it make you feel about the Sacklers or, or any of the other families or companies involved in this opioid epidemic? Does it change your feeling about the kinds of punishments these people should receive? You know, I think this is this is nothing new, and um, you know, we we all know the role that um, the pill mills and and the family has has played in the opioid crisis. But I I think there's also a risk in focusing too much on that and not the larger picture of addiction. And and today it's it's not so much about opioid prescriptions. Today it's about fentanyl. You know, they talk about a fourth wave. And we really need to get a grip on how we help people who are addicted to fentanyl and other drugs right now by making medic medication-assisted treatment available and really addressing some of the root causes of addiction, whether it's to, to opioids or, or any other drug. There is a socioeconomic element to this too. It seems to have, it's the poorer uh, people, the less, um, the less well-connected, uh, not on the coasts. These seem to be the people most susceptible to these uh, drugs. Is that fair? Or at least to their addiction and access to it? You know, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I don't know how much more time we have, but there was a really interesting study um, done with Vietnam veterans um, that really overturns a lot of the assumptions that we have about addiction and addiction to opioids in, in particular. Um, and, you know, many of the things that we we believe to be true because it's sort of a neat narrative do not appear to be true. And this was a really well-controlled study because there were a large number of people who were all exposed to opioids under the same circumstance. That's, that was heroin in Vietnam. And, um, you know, the biggest predictor of whether or not they would become addicted was not... Um, sort of the stress of war, which is a, a common uh, assumption that that's, that's what it is. It was, what was their life like before? And it wasn't necessarily socioeconomic conditions. It was, were they trying other drugs? Did they have some sort of problem? And, and yes, it's, you know, it, you can certainly think about addiction as one solution to a problem. Um, but I think, you know, we tend to have a very simplistic either or view of addiction. And for some people, um, it's a solution to a problem for some people. It's, you know, they had a, a genetic um, vulnerability um, for, for other people. It plays other roles. So, um, but I think some of the common stories that we tell that people can't recover from opioid addiction is absolutely not true. Uh, most people do recover. Um, or that if, they stay alive, if they stay alive, of course. If they stay alive, I mean, yes, fentanyl is is more likely to be fatal than other drugs because it suppresses your drive to breathe. Uh, but alcohol kills more people than than opioids. I don't want to make the book. I mean, the book is is great, uh, uh, Lauren. Uh, the Memory Thief. Uh, I think a lot of people are going to be deeply moved, perhaps troubled, but also inspired. I mean, not everything about it is dark. Um, uh, Rivers himself is in his own way inspiring and Jed Barash is also I think a wonderful character um, you get him to uh, write a little end note too 
And uh, he talks about, and, and you wouldn't expect Jarek, Derek Jeter, the great New York Yankees shortstop, to crop up in a book like this. But he refers to Derek Jeter. What's Derek Jeter got to do with all this? Um, Derek Jeter is someone who just gives it his all, even when there seems to be no apparent chance at success. Because you sort of never know um, when, um, when you might actually make it. And so he just goes all out against the odds. And, uh, you know, I think Jed Barish, for him, it's, it's the same thing. Just put your head down and, and try your best and, and see where you get. And he just thought this amnestic syndrome, there was something there to be learned. And it was worth putting his head down and, you know, finding other doctors who also felt the same way so that they could work together to try to explore what it meant. Well, Lauren, uh, I think in your own way, you're going to win my Derek Jeter Award for science journalism. You've done a great job. You put your head down. You produce this wonderful book, The Memory Thief and the Secrets Behind How We Remember. It's just out of central reading for people who, who are interested or care about this stuff or who tragically may have relatives or friends who have been affected. Um, in addition to your book, Lauren, I know you're in Boston in these waning days of COVID, so we're still many of us stuck inside. What else should people be reading? Um, well, I'll go back to an oldie, but a goodie. The, the, one of the first books that I read when I started this, which was actually about the sort of basic fundamental mechanism of, of memory. It's called The Seven Sins of Memory by Daniel Schachter. And if, if you're interested in, in all things memory, I, I guess I would start there. Well, perhaps we, do you know him? Maybe we can get him on the show to talk about memory. Uh, it's a mm -hmm. subject which is you know, a lot of people write about, but uh, it's often taken for granted. It's tragically the, the kind of thing you only think about once or, n or not think about once you lose it. Um, real honor to have you on the show, Lauren Aguirre, uh, author of The Memory Thief, Just Out. Wonderful book, important subject. Keep well, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Great to be here.